0: Welcome to the Shofar Stellenbosch Sermon Series. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our sermons are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share. I'm wanting to talk about compassion this morning, and I, and now I'm speaking to the converted, because you've got to be a very deep Christian to be in church this morning. And I'm sure all of us are getting a tick Bind our names up there with the little star, <laughs> especially the people in the foyer and up on stage. Had been here early and uh, didn't have the benefit of all these these beautiful, warm seats and uh, warm atmosphere inside here beforehand. And it's quite amazing what a what a difference our physical presence makes, and I guess our breath. Because when you step into the foyer, it's like a fridge, and when you come back inside here, it's a lot more. I don't know, civilized. <laughs> it's great to be here. We're reading together from Jude 1 verse 22. It's a, a difficult scripture. It says, on some have compassion, making a distinction. So if, if we had enough time, I would uh, love to speak on misdirected compassion, because that, that's what the scripture really speaks about, the, the fact that we can miss it. Uh, the fact that we can, meanwhile, well, really, really um, be motivated to love and and get it wrong, because um, we we're missing something very very critical with God, and I think that's a a challenge for many believers, and um, it's one that we need to reflect on from time to time, and especially um, given the time that we're living in now. Um, Follow-up scriptures, Philippians 1, verses 9 to 10. I'm going to read it from two different translations. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more and extend to its fullest development in knowledge and in keen insight, that your love may display itself in greater depth of acquaintance and more comprehensive discernment, so that you may surely learn to sense what is vital and approve and prize what is excellent and of real value, that is, recognizing the highest and the best and the distinguishing, the the moral differences, and that you may be untainted and pure and unerring and blameless, So your hearts may be sincere and and certain and unsullied. You may approach the day of Christ not stumbling or causing others to stumble. Um, The translators of the Amplified Bible writes like I do. Terrible. Just too many words. Some of you are shocked now. But let's read from the Message Bible, who sometimes the translation is sometimes as poor. But um, I I think we're getting gist here this morning so this is my prayer that your love will flourish and that you will not only love much but well learn to love appropriately you need to use your head and test your feelings so that your love is sincere and intelligent not sentimental gosh so you know a couple of years ago in the last 20 years social scientists have come up with the idea of emotional intelligence and obviously it's something that um, has been known in Hebrew thought for a long time the fact that um, it's, it's great to harbor emotions. It's, it's great to have um, sentiment. It's great to have positive and good sentiment. Um, it is very dangerous if we don't know how to direct that. If, it's very dangerous if you've got feelings and emotions, even though they're positive, and, and you, you cannot um, limit them. I, I sometimes think of people um, that have difficulty controlling their emotions, even their positive m- emotions, as, as motor cars, um, w- either without a handbrake or the handbrake cable snapped you know when you when you start doing something um and and you've been to these weddings already, the bride starts making a speech and then she starts and then she starts and she goes on and on and two and a half hours later she's thanked almost half the room. Some of you have you should go to more weddings it happens <laughs> at the reception, and you know you've got that cringe moment and you you You're wanting to hope that a mechanic's going to rush in and just restore a handbrake cable so that she can, you know, screech to a halt. Well, a lot of us have that problem emotionally sometimes. And this morning, I just want us to think about it. And it's it's a little bit more critical than we realize at face value. So um, I'm hoping to get to where I'd like to end up this morning. And I hope it's not too information rich um, and that you can stay with me and, and trust that you just get the gist of it. I, uh, a while ago, when I was thinking about this subject, I went to uh, a few people who are really into compassion, and I started off with Compassion International. You could do that if you wanted to go and Google Compassion International. And it was interesting, because uh, I thought if anybody could define compassion for me, they could. <laughs> and uh, and that's, that's when it started getting very, very odd and strange. And in all their understanding of compassion, they don't reference Christ once or scripture once, which isn't the the worst thing. It's just that they misdefine compassion altogether because they, they seem to have another notion that does not derive from any scriptural meaning or relevance. And the fact is that Christ was the first one to speak of compassion. Mercy and compassion was a foreign concept to the entire human civilization until Christ arrived. And Christ took a Greek word "splankidzomai," and it originally meant courage, and and He gave it new definition. And so, when the Bible speaks of compassion, there are basically two basic um, thoughts that are involved. And um, the first one speaks of of the fact that we we are very deeply moved, like in our bowels. Um, The King James Version speaks of bowels of mercy when it speaks of compassion, really. And so that thought has persisted over time. And and in the English language, in idiomatic use, um, you've heard it said, when, when people have fights, somebody will say, you make me sick. Or that situation really freaked me out. It made me sick to my stomach. Okay, so so the English word to be the, the viscera, the the innards, yeah, the intestines, uh, sometimes called the viscera. We speak of a visceral experience, something that moves you inside. You you can you can feel it in your gut, and um, that is the the basic idea of of compassion. Scripture speaks of of uh, in the Psalms of a mom looking at a baby that she's really deeply moved. It, it's, not, it's not a light emotional experience. It's, it's something that you feel at the center of your being. It's something that encompasses your whole being. You really feel it, but it's a feeling toward, and it's a feeling for, and, and it's a feeling that is so strong that it sets your whole being, your whole system on full alert. You, you're ready. If there's any need manifesting right now, if there's anything that you may need from me, I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to intervene. I'm going to do it. That, that's the biblical thought behind compassion. And obviously, it involves the, the whole idea that you're willing to make a sacrifice. You, you, you're willing to, to be there for the other person without fear of pain or in the sake of Christ on the cross who exemplified the idea in his death even to face death. Okay, so compassion is to feel oneself strongly moved to show another person unsolicited kindness that is both generous and, and selfish. Compassion is also a unilateral emotion. It's, it's not one that gets elicited. It's, it's not one where, where somebody else is nice to you and you're back to, nice back to them. That's love. Compassion is, is different. Compassion has nothing to do with what the other person does or doesn't do. Compassion is a completely one-sided reaching out of, of your heart to, to another person. Christ, I, I want us just to look at a few times that Christ demonstrates it. Because when Christ demonstrates compassion, there's, there's something very interesting that we see in the Gospels. And as I just shared last week, and I, I would encourage you some of you to do it. Um, if, if you really have difficulty growing spiritually... You didn't go uh, into long seasons of periods of prayer and fasting. You didn't have 20 other people pray for you. Just take time out every day, preferably first thing in the morning, and, and grab your New Testament and, and say a simple prayer. Say, Holy Spirit, I, I want to see Christ. I need to see Christ. And then you start reading through the Gospels. Just a few verses. I, I used to do it like this. I'd, I'd read the Gospels until my toes started curling, which, which means my, my system is saying, you've had enough now. And sometimes it's three scriptures on, and, and that's it. Um, but just keep feeding, feeding your mind, feeding your spirit with uh, the pursuit of, of the image of Christ. Seeing Christ makes all the difference because it's something that the Holy Spirit really uses to connect us. And, and you're going to see why this is important just a little while. Okay, so Christ demonstrates compassion like this. Matthew 9, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were distressed and scattered as sheep. Not having a shepherd. Godly compassion gets triggered when the Holy Spirit enjoys full control of one's eye gate. There are two reasons why there's so much turmoil in the world today. And both of them tie together. And it's not got to do with money or power or politics. It has to do with a massive cosmic struggle that actually rages outside of the earth, but then encompasses the earth. And it works like this. The reason why there's such a battle between good and evil, light and darkness, from the Christian perspective, is because the Father's got one desire for us. And the Father's desire is very simple. It's that we all end up looking like Christ. And Christ came to introduce God as, as a father. And, and that's very powerful and that's very specific. And it's not gender specific or culture specific. It, it's a very spiritual notion because it's something that, that we all can understand. In the same way that a dad's big delight is not when his son gets married or graduates. He's, his delight is in, in watching the little guy, even when he's, I mean, watching the little babies at the back. So beautiful. But it's, it's when you watch your kids and you can see something of yourself in there. And um, and some of us don't quite get this. But what the parent is hoping for is that running around there's an upgrade of himself. That's where your pride comes from, because because that that is is the uh, the person in which you've deposited all of your hope, all of your aspirations, all of your dreams, and and something deep down inside of you is is hoping that that little person is going to carry it on, carry it further. The, That instinct that we have with us comes from Father God. He gave it to us. Every parent has it. Every mom has it. Every dad has it. And if we want to understand the love of the Father, that's something we must get about him. And when we look at the other side, the powers of darkness, Satan so wants, Lucifer so wants to be father of mankind. He's like the guy who stormed into the house. Dad's gone off. Dad's not around anymore. So he's come over to take over the household. And he so badly wants th- that family to begin to form, to conform to who he is. He wants the kids to look like him, sound like him. And, and he's working very hard. He's very committed. Suddenly he's very committed to the human family. So the fight is about something in Latin called the imago dei, the image of God. And the whole spiritual battle on the earth just revolves around this one issue. Say Imago Dei. Imago Dei. When, when you and I get saved, the purpose for our salvation is not that we, that we do amazing things and become cute people. The ultimate purpose is so that God can do what he was wanting to do right in the beginning to establish his image in us fully. fully. And so that's why Christ calls it the what? The new birth, the rebirth, the rebirth into what? Not the life of religion or church life. That's instrumental, and that's important. But fundamental is God's desire to see himself restored in us. And so, what Satan does is he works very hard to attack us in the area of of the God image. And that's why... Satan would go for what is essential to God. The idea of love, God is love. One of the most powerful areas that that Satan focuses on in the world is is not Satanism or Islam or radical Islam or stuff like that. I mean, those are manifestations of a a much deeper commitment. And that commitment is the redefinition of how we understand life and therefore how we understand love. And so he focuses a lot on, on global culture, popular culture, and he controls that like you will not believe. He invests so much energy and time into controlling that because he needs to define our understanding of life and love. If he, underst- if he defines our understanding of life and love, he controls what we aspire after. Do you know something that, that you, you can't wish for anything that you haven't seen? You can't ever miss somebody that you've never known. You can't long for something that you've never experienced. Can somebody say amen? So what I'm talking about is the importance of the eye gate. What what we see. I'm talking about how we see life. And how we see love is so important to the powers of darkness. And so, let's look at a few more scriptures. And you're going to see something about how Christ ministers compassion. It, It helps us to understand something of how the Bible sees compassion. Christ in Jerusalem. Now when Jesus approached. And saw the city. He wept over it saying. If you only had known. On this day. Even you the things that make. For peace. But now hidden from your eyes. Christ. Christ. Weeps over Jerusalem. But again, Christ stands there and he looks at the city, but he doesn't look at the city. He looks beyond the city. He looks to 70 years into the future and he he sees the Roman legions come in, sacking the city. He he sees a lot of death and carnage. He he sees it coming. Before that, he sees something else happening. He sees the Holy Spirit coming upon Jerusalem and he's weeping for an intervention. And and his prayers answered in, in both ways, but... Here's the thing about biblical compassion. If we understand that biblical compassion is about allowing the Holy Spirit access to your eye gate. To control what you see and how you see. And to have an influence over your powers of interpretation. It's amazing. We we can all look at the same stuff and and come away with different interpretations. It's it's like um, three friends going to a party. One says it was amazing. The other one says it was boring. The, the other one says it was just downright dreadful. But they were at the same party. Well, what's the difference? The difference is, is perception. We all perceive things differently. And it's our eye gate that is the important thing. And I believe that, that when we get handles on, on the biblical idea of compassion... we are then in a position where God can have conversations with us about what he sees. A lot of people are running around. they want wanting to become more prophetic, and they go to prophetic schools, and they have prophetic anointings, oil on the head, and stuff like that. And and I really want us to, to just stay away from all of that stuff, that looking for power and looking for gifts and looking for stuff. There's nothing wrong with it. But right now, it's just such a dangerous thing. It, it, it's such an ego-driven exercise. It makes me very nervous, I must tell you. People looking for a sense of significance. Looking for some value in their contribution. And that's not what we call to as, as believers. But when, when Christ looks over the city, God can have a conversation with his son as to what's going on here. So much so that he begins to weep and pray and you know that the body of Christ is conforming to the Imago Day, not by if it prays only, but by how it prays. And I can tell you if the body of Christ is praying without tears, then God has a lot of work to do in restoring us to the Imago Day. and says so it'll be the longest thing to to tell the children of god listen we must we must pray with tears because the days are dreadful and the days are evil and and and, and things are looking so bleak you see our, our panic doesn't doesn't change anything it's what lives in the heart of the father that changes things but so god really needs our eyes when when we look over our cities when we look over our nation Compassion allows God to open up our eyes to see into the unseen, to see in a transcending way, to look at a situation or a person and to see beyond that person, not because you have the gift of divination or prophecy, but just because God can engage you in a conversation about what's actually happening there, about what's waiting around the next bend. Are are you with me? Is, Is somebody awake this morning? That's great. There's this beautiful, beautiful account of compassion that that Christ gives, and we're going to come back to that before we finish today. If I can just find the scripture, but it's um, Luke ten thirty three thirty four. But a Samaritan was traveling, came to where the injured man was, and and watch this. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on his head. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn. And took care of them. And the amazing thing is. Scripture makes a point of telling us that this man saw the injured man. A lot of people saw the injured man. A legal man, a religious man passed by. And then Christ makes the, the parable a very controversial one. Suddenly brings race into it. He says, but a Samaritan. But a man from another race, but a man from a despised race, but a man from from an outsider, from a marg- marginalized man. But he came along, and and he saw. And this is when compassion gets very powerful. God's compassion has him look from eternity into earth, and as I shared a few weeks ago, it's still one of the most powerful. Pictures in the whole of scripture for me where Isaiah's is on his knees before the throne and the angels around the throne. they on their own pluck. They're crying, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And, and we all get that. But then they sing the whole earth is full of his glory, you know. And it doesn't make sense because being in the holiness of God and, and seeing that glory and, and that beauty and then looking at the earth that isn't holy and that isn't beautiful and that isn't filled with his glory, how on earth do they? can they say that? How, how can they say that the earth is full of glory? How, how can they see things that aren't there that are meant to be there according to them? How, how do they do that? And, and is that true? Or are they just misled? or Are they just um, optimistic beings? You know, this is where the story of the Samaritan is so amazing, where, where other people see a lot of inconvenience, where they see complications, where they see danger, threat. Um, when an injured man lies on the street in Chicago today or in London, most people will walk by like that because we'll all think like the people. We'll see him lying there and we'll think, okay, danger, National Health Service in England, um, A lot of complications in America, legal complications if you touch the the person, touch his blood. um, It's safer just to walk on. It's safer not to get involved. In South Africa, we've got more reasons not to get involved. It's safer. But then somebody comes along and and he doesn't seem to see all of those uh, impediments, all, all of those issues. He sees an opportunity. And he, his commitment is such that, that he's obviously approaching this whole situation very differently. And that's, that's the power of biblical compassion. And, and I, I tell you, if, if we get this thing, this is our... Nations and situations get changed because if, if you have a lot of entrepreneurs that can begin to see through the eyes of compassion, where other people see trouble, we see opportunities. And those opportunities are redemptive opportunities for God to begin to move and you to make a living. And maybe if we have time, we, we can talk about that a little bit later. Matthew fourteen fourteen. When Jesus landed... And saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them. And healed their sick. Compassion is the catalyst for the manifestation of the power of God. Let's go on. Luke 15 verse 20. A prodigal son. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion for him. I think you're starting to get the picture. The the New Testament is very deliberate in its portrayal of compassion. It has to do with the eye gate. It's not about our sensitivity in in terms of feeling. You see with, with the injured man in the previous scenario, a lot of people passing by would have... Sympathy. A lot of people passing by may have empathy. They'd be able to feel it because they were there. They were mugged too. They were hijacked too. But that gives them more reason to go on by. Because they understand the dangers too. And yet there's there's a particular way of looking, viewing things, which is very interesting because... If we get that right, we begin to experience God's manifest accompaniment. God is with us to do what his heart wanted to do all along. So when Christ comes along and he he sees a situation the way God does, God pitches and then amazing miracles happen. I wish I can say this every week, but people, we must not be seduced into running after miracles and pursuing miracles and wanting to do miracles and signs and wonders. It's not of God. Our challenge is to see what God sees so that we can feel what he feels. So that we can do nothing except have a conversation with him about what he wants done in a particular situation. This morning we're talking about Jude 1.22. On some have compassion making a distinction. We're talking about a certain emotional intelligence that comes from the heart of the Father, that comes from the mind of the Father. There's so much misdirected compassion in this world, and well-meaning people are doing a lot more harm to this world than evil people. I know some of you don't agree with me, but I really feel strongly about that. I sometimes think if you can, you can just arrest a couple of those do-gooders in the middle of chaos, we'll, we'll have half the, the world's problem solved. Some people just don't have the ability to stand back and to think through the issues. And some people are so committed to doing good, but they don't have a moral center. They don't have any sense of morality at all, but they have all these pressing feelings. They want to make a difference, and it has nothing to do with the recipients of their goodness. It has everything to do with the selfish need for a sense of significance. That's why so much harm gets done. And a lot of organizations share corporately. A lot of groups share this on the whole. Romans 5, verse 5 reads, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In the NET it reads like this, the love that comes from God and that produces our love for God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So biblical compassion has a lot to do with whether we have a relationship with the Holy Spirit or not. Now, it sounds like something one shouldn't say in church, but Unfortunately, it's something one, one should say to charismatic people all along. For, for some reason, we, we do love sometimes and, and we have conversations about love. But mostly, we've got a conversation about the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is all about helping us to do life. And the Holy Spirit hasn't come us come to make us do stuff. The Holy Spirit's job has come to help us make us be. Be like God. And God isn't the great I do. God is the great I am. You know, w- one of the hardest things for us as believers is to go through those moments or come to moments when God says to you, do nothing. Just watch. I want him to talk to you. Just, just, just stand still for a little bit. Now I go home and pray about it and come back, watch some more. There's some stuff I, I need for you to learn. But the power to slow down, I cannot tell you how important that is when it comes to a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Of all the mistakes I've made in ministry over over the years is because of a lack of meekness. You're in a situation and exciting things are happening and and you're really sensing God and you know God is moving and we get so excited. I've seen people's lives ruined through my good efforts in ministry. And I don't say that proudly when I stand before God and I say this in fear and trembling I've got a lot of lot of issues he's going to talk to me about. Because you see, that's that's with us as believers. The stewardship that we have of the image of God, of of the the power of God, is it's it's a lot greater than we realize. The Father takes it so seriously. Life is not a game, and, and following Christ is not a game, it's not a sport, and it's not entertainment, and we don't do it for leisure, it's eternal. And so many times we we take what happens down here, again, way too seriously because we live like the pagans. We live like this is all we have. This this life, we've got one shot. We don't have one shot. We've got one shot to prepare us for the real life which happens in eternity. And it's quite sad to see how the increasing pressure of the world is, is making Christians more desperate than the people outside the church desperate to get everything in this life and to do everything in this life and to be everything in this life. When this life is so short for a a reason, we serve an eternal God and we are finite beings blessed with an extraordinary little, little time of earthly existence. And what makes that existence so critical and so important is because it's all that God has given us to prepare For the fulfillment of our actual purpose that happens in the age to come. Can somebody say amen? Now, to say stuff like that is so weird to modern people because we don't go there in our minds. Because you can go to a lot of church in the the, the area now and, and you can hear a prosperity message that is not the gospel. And it's so sad. It's such a travesty of the truth because it has to do with the presupposition that this is it. There's no eternal hope. And so this is where we find our feet. This is where we begin to get anchored. And this is what the Holy Spirit has come to help us with. It's to understand something of the love of God, of compassion. And the most important thing I need to say about this right now is that you and I don't have it. And you and I are not capable of it. So in dealing with this issue, the most important thing is to go to God on a regular basis, daily if you can, and say, God, I can't, but I so want to. Spirit of God, continue the pouring, not the power, not the magic. I want the image of the Father. Pour the love of the Father into me. Okay, now now, now it's, it's, it's going to get um, a little bit more challenging. Go with me to Mark 8, 22 to 25. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he'd spit in the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then the man's eyes opened, and, and, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. You see, it, it's such a powerful, powerful, powerful picture here of our relationship with God through Christ. Think of it like this. There's a, uh, a preacher in the village. And he's got his tent and his megaphone or whatever, and, and he's preaching. So there's an altar call, and, and a spiritually blind guy comes in, and he gets introduced to Christ. And then Christ has a conversation with him and says, what do you see? And he says, well, uh, I'm, so, I'm so blessed, I, I can see, I can see. But watch this. Christ meets the man in the village. And he takes him by the hand and takes him for a walk. And it's at that from that moment on, that man can sing, I know Jesus because he's holding my hand. I know Jesus because we're walking a road. I know Jesus. When, when I was a kid, um, they used to sing this hymn, and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I'm his own. This man... Must be the author of that song. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and he comforts me. He's my shepherd. I'm being shepherded by Christ. But watch this. Nothing has happened yet. Christ has just taken him by the hand and walked him. But watch this. Christ doesn't do anything for the man while they're in the village. Christ walks him outside of the village. Now for me this is one of the challenging aspects of of getting to know God, getting to know Christ, getting to know compassion because sometimes the miracles cannot happen like with Abraham where you live in a metaphorical sense. It cannot happen in the space that you occupy. The first thing Christ many times does with us is he takes you by the hand and he walks you out of your current space. And it's so sad to see so many people who have a relationship with Christ, but they still are on their way outside to where Christ wants to heal them. He wants to touch their eyes. But he's not going to do it in your black village, in your white village, in your rich village, in your poor village, in your male village, in your female village. He's not going to do it in your marginal village or your privileged village. He's not going to do it there. Christ has a need to walk you out of your village. And once you come outside of your village, then he says, I need to do something for you right now. He puts clay on the man's eyes and he says to the man, Do you see it? And the man says, Yeah, but I I uh <clears throat> I I I can I can see a lot of people, and there's a lot of movement. It's very exciting, but 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 people look like stuff, they look like trees. At the moment in our world, there are a lot of people like that out there and they're in the body of Jesus Christ. And we've got a huge crisis in the world. And the crisis in the world today is about, it's it's a big phrase, but I want you to remember it. Identificational politics. Can you say that? Identificational politics. It's the politics of identity. The who am I? Who are you? And who am I to you? And who are you to me? Christ called his disciples to him once and said, listen, um, there's a lot of conversation happening in the nation. Now, I know it's about me. Um, it's about who I am. And, and what's the word in the streets? What, what will the people say? Who am I? And eventually he says to the disciples, but who do you say? Who, who am I? What, what do you say about my identity? And once Christ gets an uh, answer from Peter that is satisfactory, he begins to speak into Peter's identity. He says, you are Peter. In fact, I'm giving you a new name right now. I'm giving you a new ad- identity right now. And he speaks, begins to speak prophetically into Peter's future. For the next few minutes, I, I just want to speak about where the world is at right now and why the world is, is out here. I said last week, like, with, with Brexit, with England leaving the, the UK, it's a God moment. It's a huge moment because it shouldn't be happening. It's, 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 it's like um, a soccer team or a rugby team that loses. It's, it's losing statistically, losing the game, and then there's this fluke of a goal or a fluke of a try that, that swings everything. It's, it's one of those moments historically. For the next while, God, I believe, is about to pull up the handbrake of the world's history to give us a little window in which we have opportunity to get the work done, the work of the Father done. If the handbrake does not get pulled up, the world would have been, the West would have been under martial law in less than three years. I know a lot of you don't look around. I do it all the time. It's my job. I pray into these things. Europe and America is that close to having martial law imposed on it. Everything that's happening is happening by design. But in the middle of all of that, the chaos, the political upheaval has one thing in common. Identity, politics, the who am I and who am I not. and The fact that I can choose and decide to be what I am and who I am at any given time and I can change my mind every three days. And it's a Genesis chapter 1 situation. God said, I create you humans in my image. And Satan said, no, I will remake that. And he says to Christ, by the time you come back, the whole of the world will look like me, they'll act like me, and they will think like me. And so Christ says in Matthew 25, when I come back home and I have the nations before me, I'm, I'm looking for one thing. I'm, I'm wanting to see who's got the nature of the lamb, who are sheep nations, and who are goat nations, who's got the nature of the evil one. I don't know if, if you're aware of it. But if you're a Freemason or if you're a Satanist, you're aware of the goat head, Baphomet, the God Baphomet, one of the images of Satan. And Christ was using all of this imagery very deliberately. He wasn't speaking about how religious the world would be. He was talking about identity politics. And if believers don't understand this right now, we're going to miss God because God is about to move very powerfully now. I believe God is about to reveal His power. I believe God is about to to manifest His glory mightily in in seeing restoration in people's lives in this area in a way we've never seen before. But we need to understand what God is doing and what, what is going on. It's a lot more important to hear what God says about who we are, to hear what God says about what's going on, in one sense. We must understand what the politics are about. Can, can we just put that graphic up there quickly? If black was white and white was black, would you still hold a racial prejudice against people? Now, th- this, is, this is heavy, people, because Scripture says you must discriminate. That's our first Scripture, it says, make a distinction. To discriminate means to make a distinction. And at the same time, it's wrong to make a distinction. And it's very important for us as believers to understand something about this. So Christ takes this man outside the village. And he says to the man, so you can see, but but you still see people as objectives, objects. You objectify people. And so many times there's such an important reason why God has to do a second work of grace in our lives. And this is why the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came to unveil us. And can I tell you that in most cultures of this world... There's such a huge battle for that first two months, three months of an infant's life when that child gets initiated or christened. And you'd notice that in most cultures of the world, there's a ritual that involves the forehead and a sealing of the forehead. And it's called baptism. Have you ever wondered why? Have have you ever wondered why you can do almost anything? I've, I've had fathers come into this town over time and says, one, one man, he's an elder in, in an Afrikaans church, and he says, I'd rather have you sleep around, get drunk every night, and, and do clubbing, but you will not get yourself baptized, because then I disown you. Anybody ever heard stuff like that? Why? I can tell you it's not rational. It's crazy. Because It's demonic. The powers of darkness have so much vested interest in just that little issue there. You know, and logically speaking, it's, it's like if you go to somebody's swimming pool and, and you go to swim, you get out, um, you dry yourself, you go home. But go to that same swimming pool, get out, and somebody prays for you before you get out of the swimming pool. And somebody puts you down three times, says in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you get out. And you go home and you dry yourself and you tell your mom, I went to swim at Johnny's house today again. But before I got out, they went in the Father, Son, and the word, and, and, and then they then I and then they prayed over me. Watch what happens then. You go, Mom, but, but it's the same, Johnny. I play there every day and it's the same swimming pool, I swim there every day. What what what's what, are you superstitious? Watch people who don't believe in the supernatural become superstitious when it comes to that issue. Watch entire denominations disband pastors, they they have a great track record. Great, great um, congregations do great work. We're all in agreement until it comes to, to this little issue. And it's not about being baptized again. Can I tell you what the issue is about? It's about the esoteric, the spiritual relevance of what happened when you were a little kid. And about the need to not annul that. Don't cancel that. Don't neutralize that. Because that act was designed to make you stay in the village. That act says, Christ, if you want to do for me what you want to do for me, you may do it as long as we stay inside the village. But no, I'm not following you out the village. You have come to the cross, but that's not good enough. You need to come into my white village. You need to come into my black village. You need to come into my Chinese village, but you must come in here. Because we welcome you here. It's great to have you here. But no, I, I, will, not, I will not follow you to that open space. I, we, we, don't, we don't do that. And I find it amazing how, how believers can sit down and have a conversation about this over tea or coffee and, and not understand that there's cognitive dissonance here. That mom and dad and grandpa, I really don't understand what this issue is about. I've done this. like having a shower in the morning. And me having worship in the shower. What's, what's the difference? The difference is huge because of the spiritual investment in that moment when you were little. And so a lot, a lot of believers have great difficulty moving beyond where they are. And, and I really want us to, to listen carefully now. There are a lot of people who cannot move beyond the ability of our fallenness to see, to perceive. We are either blinded or semi-blinded. I remember going to see a pastor in the early 90s. And I was praying about a very promising young man. He had in the ministry with them. And I'd heard several great things about that guy. And I prayed for him about the young minister, and, uh, and the Lord told me a few things about him. And, and then I, I felt some of the stuff the Lord showed me. In fact, I took a whole day of praying and fasting about this young pastor. Um, and I felt the Lord share some stuff with me. So I went to the elder pastor and, and went to him and, and said, Listen, this man that you have with you is, is a great man, but the Lord just wanted me, I believe, to tell you that un- unless... Um, you take some drastic measures, this, this young man is going to hurt you very, very deeply in, in your ministry because he has an absolute spirit. And I turned out to be right. That young man tore into that ministry, took away all the elders and all the big givers, and he started a new ministry, and it was big, and for a little while almost exploded. But this older pastor, unfortunately, didn't receive what I said to him because he looked at me like somebody had not left the village yet. When I was done, he said, now, I just wanted you to know one thing. I'm not giving you any money. And I said to him, I, I didn't come to ask for money. I don't want money. I don't want money. Any, I don't want anything from you. He said, now, I know your type. You come here with your fancy stories. but you just after my money. You want my money. I know you. I said, oh, well, I'm I'm sorry. I don't want your money. I just thought I'd leave the word of God with you. You know, I went back to that old man maybe 10 years, 12 years later because now that old man wanted me to take over his church. And I went to him and said, so you want this relationship with me? But can we talk about that day, that that day when, when you were on about the money that I want? And he wouldn't talk to me about it. I go back to people so often... Because as as sons of God, we must be peacemakers. We must be pursuing clarity and we must ask questions that matter from place of just caring and concern. And the old man wouldn't talk about it. And can I tell you why he wouldn't talk about it? Because he can't. It is sometimes so hard for people. to take the step out of that village space. We sit in that village, and in this village we were taught that people are coming through the gate, and they look like this, and they sound like this. They may be nice, they they may be fine, but I, I tell you something, you can know this and this and this about them. Okay, so with objectification, if you see people as a something or a someone, not a someone, but a something, then the next thing that happens is you stereotype. You make general observations that applies to a whole group that is mostly negative. And it happens all the time. We do it all the time. You know, at the end of 2014, the Lord said to me, and I I shared it with the pastors, we must have a conversation about this because something is about to break. And it's not like I'm sensitive or or anything. And at that stage, we had a situation where, you know, we'd been going through some stuff and and I'd been going through some stuff. And I was saying to them that, listen, of, of all the 14... Of you guys around the table, there are three guys sitting here to my left who have sent me one SMS to say, Fred, how are you? How are you doing? I said, the rest of you just haven't said anything. Two of the young men got up and said, listen, we just want you to know that to have us around is, is, you must count yourself privileged because at least we didn't walk away. And I said to them, listen, whatever you do, never give that answer to your wife and kids. When you have a conversation that is sensitive like this, it's the wrong answer. Because it's arrogant, it's proud. A dad never says to his kids, well, I'm here. So you don't have a right to, to be feel hurt by me. Or to a wife, listen, I, I've been here, I'm, I'm, I'm here, am I not? Isn't that enough for you? It's the wrong answer, it's insensitive, and, and sometimes even a bit arrogant. And this morning what I'm saying is that Christ is wanting a conversation with us as the body of Christ at this time for the sake of the world. But it's not anything that we must feel condemned about because we are just the products of the villages that we come from. Can somebody say amen? But can I tell you something about your village? Your village is as cool as my village. but it's still not cool enough for Christ to do in my life what he wants to do in my life. He wants me to to walk out of that village to meet him in open space. That's why Christ didn't die in the city, says, the writer of the Hebrews says he died outside the camp. And this is most probably the greatest challenge for believers, to know that God calls us to intimacy with him outside of cultural space, outside of political space. Outside of a space where our identity gets determined by other people around us in long history and many things that happened or fail to happen. And then the first conversation he has with us is one of compassion. He says, what do you see? And he doesn't mean, are, are you seeing advances in science and technology? Are you seeing power? Are you seeing money? Are you seeing... Do you see a Malema world where there's people with land or without land? What, what do you see? No, 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 no. Christ wants to know, what, what do you see about the people around you? What, what, what do you see? Do you see people? And, and if you say, Ah, oh God, well, yeah, I, I have a lot of awkward moments where, where I have uh, stuff happening in my gut and it's involuntary. And, and, you know, the village experience is, is some, something so powerful. It's like when you're overseas and you're driving in a car, right? And I don't know about you, but, but it's, it's quite nice when you're in America and, and you can drive around because, like in the Bible Belt states, they don't have traffic cops and they don't have as many cops as we do here. In fact, you can go for days without seeing a cop at all. They don't have cameras and, and all of that. So, so it feels pretty relaxed. <laughs> but now here's the catch especially a little while ago I was, I was on a bike just cruising around there a friend's bike if you relax and especially when you come to a, what they call a roundabout we call it a traffic circle if you relax there you're most likely to die because you know what happens as soon as you relax you go back to habits and over here it's good habits If you're there in another space, it's a deadly habit. When you go to the wrong side of the road, you're going to die. At the moment, we've got a lot of people on the wrong side of the road. They die. We don't realize we're in a different space. But we haven't left the village yet, and our heads we're driving around in America, but we haven't made the shift yet. And I believe we're living in critical days when God doesn't want us to walk to another village. He just wants us to come to where Christ is. And it's not, it's not stuff out there, so, but it's stuff that happens in here. So objectification is, is about a negative value judgment based on perceived personal benefit or usefulness. When we look at people and we think about how they can bless us and how they're good for us, we're not with Christ. If we're stereotyping, if we're in making unthinking evaluations based on negative assumptions and we extend it in the same way to a whole group, we're not on the same page with Christ. I was, I, I don't, I'm not a big social media guy, but I, I do police um, it from my area. So if, if there's anybody in church that says stuff that's unbiblical or wrong, I chirp in these days and, and I, I help people just so that everybody can know. But I also do it for us as a, as a Christian community so that people know we don't do that. I, I, I had a lady post the other day about um, the horrors of whiteness and, and how we, we need to fight whiteness. And I said, no, we, we don't fight whiteness. The same way we don't fight blackness. We, we don't do that. You know why? Because Christ doesn't do that. Sometimes seeing people as trees speaks about what these days is called supremacy. I don't like the word, but I believe it's descriptive. I have uh, such a burden that we move to different space since we are missional, but God wants us to move to apostolic space. That we never get into a place where we ever get sent to minister to people in other parts of the world, and they happen to be in countries that are going through a rough time, and we come there with the assumption that we have something to offer them because we wear shoes, we have degrees, and we wear clothes. You know, the amazing thing is that a lot of the people that we do missions to are saints like we can only dream of being. It's people who generally lay down their lives for the, for, the, for the... The best we can do is just to go there and wash their feet and to honor them and to defer to them. But there are very few villages that we come from that do that naturally, that honor other people because they're different. What is standard for an average village is that we look down on people because we like to believe that Where we come from is better. Isn't that so? So if our village prescribes to blackness or whiteness, we'd like to believe that we've got the edge in some way. And in the natural, obviously, that is true. Every cultural group has its redemptive virtues because we've got redemptive gifts that God gives us. And I'd like to speak about that sometime. I've sort of got in the back of my mind when, when I talk to the students again to, to speak on the, on the issue of race. Because it's something we must talk about. How does God feel about it? How do, what does scripture say about it? But what we're talking about this morning is the fact that there's a, there's a place, there's a space that God wants us to move to. Where discrimination In the negative sense, ceases to be G.K. Chesterton. He's the man who mentored C.S. Lewis and inspired him to become a writer. Says the following. Trees have no dogmas and and turnips are singularly broad-minded in terms of ideology. Serious people should aspire to be more than a tree or a turnip. President Barack Obama said lately. What is required is a new declaration of independence, not just in our nation, but in our own lives from ideology and small thinking, prejudice, and bigotry. Two men saying very powerful things, and they sound very similar, and they cannot be further apart. And I'm using that deliberately this morning, because as Christians, we need to learn, love, that can make a distinction. And we don't have much time this morning, but where President Barack Obama is coming from, he's saying we must get rid of ideologists, people who subscribe to certain ideologies. The assumption is that if you have an ideology that you subscribe to, then you're a bigot. And so at the moment in the world, especially among people who are very committed to being compassionate, the thing to be is to be pragmatic. In other words, you look at the needs and you meet the needs. Just, just let me read you the rest. I'm, I'm quoting here from the American progressives who created a philosoph- philosophical school, namely pragmatism. As a matter of principle, they reject philosophical principles. And William James, one of their founders, argued that we should measure ideas, not whether they are right or wrong, but where they work. Ideas are right if they have cash value, according to James. The universal lament is, why can't we move beyond these partisan labels, this philosophical divide, and get to the hard work of dealing with the problems we're facing. But that's the warning. And I'm, I'm wanting to drop this into your lap. It's just the beginning of a conversation. But it's something that we as believers must get our heads around. Christianity is an ideology. Can somebody say amen? And do you know what an ideology is? It's a set of principles. It's a set of value priorities that a p- person holds dear. And Christians happen to have it. You cannot be a Christian and not have a commitment to principle. Amen? And if you string a whole bunch of principles together, you get an ideology. Now, there are a lot of people who claim to be compassionate, but they say the problem with this world today are bigots, people with principles. And they impose it on other people. So they'd say stuff like, John Lennon, imagine if we had a world without principles, without ideologies, a world without religion. People doing what? People living for today. And he dreams of a world of pragmatism. But that's a very dangerous world because that is the world inhabited by this man that Christ prayed for once. Who sees the world as trees? People are just objects. They produce fruit that you can pick, and if it's good, they're good people. If they produce bad fruit, they're bad people, so you cut them down and burn the wood and go on. We deal with things as they are. Pragmatism. We have leaders today in the world that are pragmatists. If you want to know where their values lie, follow the money. As Christians, we must learn to do that. If you try to, you try to make sense of why people do things, if, if you try to make sense of, of people walking around with placards one day and saying gun control in America, which may be right, which may be wrong, but those same people the next day walk around with placards saying freedom to women to do with their bodies what they want to, then they promote abortion. The same people. Then you go, but now is gun control about saving lives? and so, What is that about? But it's the same people. Called cognitive dissonance. we over time. I'm way, way over time. Just, just let's jump to that um, little list of five strategies that the devil uses to keep us in bondage. And it, to my mind, it's important that we understand how people arrive at a place of pragmatism. Believers can do that too. We know that sin is a tool that Satan uses, but sin is not the big issue. Temptation is the big issue. You know, it's, it's like saying a gorilla is a problem. No, gorilla is only a problem if you fall into its cage at the zoo. Can somebody say amen? Same with sin. Sin isn't a problem. The problem is learning how to deal with temptation. But once Satan has got, got us past this hurdle, there's a next hurdle. And that is Seduction. And that, that's when sin becomes pleasurable and desirable for us. All the wrong stuff. We really begin to enjoy it. Then there's another tool that he uses when he messes with our heads, with our sense of discernment and our judgment. It's called deception. And as soon as he's got us hooked there, he takes us one step further and, and then it becomes quite bad. Then becomes delusion. In other words, then it's not one or two things that that we're wrong about. Delusion happens when we get deceived about the fundamentals of life, about the basic right and wrongs of life. If we don't understand what compassion is, if we don't understand what love is from a biblical sense, then we are in a good place to fall for delusion. And we've come to days of delusion, days when people are very, very deeply and powerfully deluded. And then finally, what, what Satan is working toward, and I'll have to come back to this because our time is up now, but I'm, I'm glad I could drop these things with you, and I love the silence. It's the whole issue of veiling or blinding or enshrouding. Satan works hard at blinding individuals and then blinding groups, the whole village, and then the whole cultural group, the whole nation. And God wants to touch us in our hearts to where we become aware of somebody being blinded right in the beginning when we just started doing missions. I was strongly encouraged to go to the university to talk to them. They used to have these little minibuses that used to run around there, and every three years they would renew the fleet. So I was asked to go to the man who manages the fleet to make a proposal for those vans for our missions. And I went there. I went there three times, and I had a great proposal. I, I said to him, listen, I'd like to buy your fleet, and, uh, but I'll, I'll pay you over five weeks, which will give us time to do our missions with them in the meantime. And uh, then before we go, we'll, we'll find buyers for the vans and then, then pre-sell them and everything. Um, so I, I thought it was a great plan. But I went to the man once and he, he said, yes, he said, think about it. Then I went back to him and I walked in there and I said, hello, have you thought about it? He says, thought about what? Who are you? And I introduced myself and sat down. I had to tell the story again. I had to do it three times, tell the same story to the same man three times. Well, the last time I walked in there and, he, and I walked in and he said, hello, who are you? Pleased to meet you. He genuinely didn't remember me. He couldn't. I don't get angry very often, but I took out my pen and he had a, a big calendar thing on his desk. And I wrote my name this big, Fred May, across his desk. And I took up my call card and I slammed it down. I walked out. And, and we had a man working at... Uh, this little shop, middle of campus, Gareth, and uh, another elder German man, Martin von Neide, and I called him, and Within an half an hour, I got them together, and I said, I, I need your help. So I shared to them my proposal, and I asked Martin to go into the man and share the proposal with the man. Five minutes later, he walked out with all of the registration paper of the, the whole fleet Martin said the man thought it was an amazing idea. Where where, where did I come to that idea? Why didn't they think of that before? It took Martin minutes. I was dealing with the blind man. He wasn't a racist. He wasn't a bigot. He was just blind. He was literally blind. He could not see me. When I walk into the room, his veil goes down. And I can do handstands. I can burp. I can do whatever I like. It's not going to have an effect on him. Also part of the reason why we have such a large staff, because I walked out of there and realized, God, I'm approaching this town wrong. I'm going to get nowhere. I need to staff us with white people fast. I'm not lying, and I did, and it worked. But can I tell you something, Church of Jesus Christ? Can we stand this morning? There's so much that I still need to share with you, but... I think we need to take a bit at a time. But there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of pain in this world today. And what happens out in the world today is not so much our concern now. You know what our concern is? God the Father wants us to bring this eye gate to him. Because it's amazing when it opens up. So many people sitting frustrated or afraid, or angry and broken, their, their extreme reactions to what's happening in the world right now As the devil's pushing the whole of civilization to the edge of a precipice so we can all free fall. Very soon. But you know, God's got a plan for it not to happen. And you know what his plan is? His plan is us. His plan is that we in the spiritual realm just pull up this massive handbrake and say, no, 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 no. Some other stuff needs to happen there. God needs to save a few billion people. He needs to heal them. He needs to restore them. So they all can look like Christ. So we all can look like Christ. We all can act like Christ because we all feel like him because we all see what he sees. We don't see ministry opportunities. We don't see business opportunities. We don't see political opportunities. We're not opportunists. We're Christ-like people. We can see people. And when we see them, all that we focus on is what is Christ saying to us? How is the Father speaking to us? So I talk to the young people on campus nowadays and I say to them, listen, you're not going to get too much sympathy from me because, you know, you can't tell me much about being discriminated against. I can, I can tell you lots. I can write books about it. But, you know, the reason I won't write books about it, can't write books about it, because this is what I signed on for when I followed Christ. And it's not like it happens in South Africa. It happens in Asia. It happens, in <laughs> it happens everywhere else. The whole world's full of this stuff. But God has called us to be apostolic people. To move with the compassion of Christ, we can jump over walls. We can cross bridges because we walk out of of our spaces. We walk out of our villages. Christ walks us out, and we don't panic when he does. Because once once we're outside, he does what he needs to do. He spits on our eyes. he, He spits on the ground. He makes clay, rubs it on our eyes. He makes us see. And once we see, we can feel. Once we feel, we understand. And once we understand, the Father can begin to talk to us. Then life, then redemption happens. what I believe God is about to do and he wants to heal his body he wants to bring people into his body out, out of the villages that we try to bring into the body of Jesus Christ and many of us bring our white villages into the body of Jesus Christ many of us bring our colored villages and many of us bring our black villages it's, I've, I've been involved in and this kind of thing on pastoral level for a long, long time. And it's just amazing. It's amazing when you put people in the same room and they start screaming at each other and there's so much hurt and they like a thousand years of history suddenly just manifests. And then it's so big and ugly, nobody knows what to do with it. And then we go and we try to deal with them on the side. And you know where that brings us? Nowhere. Because after a while, the whole movement splits and then we move on. I've been through lots of that. But I tell you, God is saying, I want you to get honest about yourself. If you're in a position where you say, I really don't understand, I don't know what's going on but I know that I'm, I've got all these negative feelings, I've got, I've got fear, I've got anger, all these things. God is saying, great. C- come to me. I, I want to I lay hands on you again. I want to pray for you again. I want you to see what I see. Because you're perceiving life through the mental frame of reference that you've inherited. You brought it from the village with you. But if you'd let me, I'm going to open up your eyes to see with the eyes of the heart that will guide you and your mind will follow. Your mind will become a servant of your heart, which is my heart. And in these days, I believe God wants to send us in a salt and light where we can weep and mourn with real pain. Because there's real pain out there and there's real fear out there. There's real white genocide happening in the country at the moment. And it's a real danger. And there's real black injustice happening in the country. And it's a real danger. And the last thing that God wants from us as his children is to run back to the village we come from ever so often. Pick up the banners and scream and shout and leave Christ standing outside the village where is he's waiting for us. This morning... If you feel a nudge in your heart, for some of you, it's going to be the biggest step you ever make. I was in the and so privileged to pray with two people after the service a few weeks ago. And a lady came to me, black lady, and she says, I came here so angry. I didn't want to come. I was dragged here by a friend against my will. And I sat here and I saw all these white people. I just couldn't believe that I'm stuck here among all these terrible people. At this point, She came forward and she was just weeping. And she says, my heart is so bad. I I can't believe what is going on in my heart. All this hatred. Can God forgive me? And I prayed with her. And I just felt the Holy Spirit so wanting to affirm this woman. And I found myself saying, no, your heart is not full of hatred. Your heart's actually full of love. Because the reason why you hate the white people is because you've got so much compassion for your colleague who got sacked this week. And got bad treatment. So you really care. You've got a caring heart, but God wants to heal that heart. Because that's the truth. Sometimes we see the anger, we see the hatred, but it's it's not that simple. There's a lot more to it than that. It's somebody who genuinely cares. And somebody who doesn't know what to do with that compassion. But Christ wants that. He wants to heal that desire to be compassionate. Then I had another person that I prayed with. He was the last person I prayed with. He didn't wait in the queue. He waited for me on the side. And he said, uh, I arrived here this morning and I looked at you and I thought, what has this hot not got to tell me? And he said, but I, I just want you to know that I, I know now that, that you're a real man of God. And I want you to pray for me. And he comes from the Israelite, Anglo-something, that deep Hebrew roots, cult sects. If you're in that this morning, please repent and come out of that. It's of the devil. Christ walked out of that village long ago. That's why we're here. If Christ didn't walk out of the village, we wouldn't be here. Don't drag us back into that village. Well, he came out of, out of there. It was so amazing just to put my arms around that guy. Because nothing that was in his heart was hurting me. What was blessing me was his desire to have Christ touch his eyes. Same with that lady. Can we pray this morning? Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the amazing thing that you're doing in this place in our lives and I thank you for people that are so powerfully moved by you to be here this morning at all to come not all of us have cars some of us have walked actually took a lot of planning to be here took a lot of sacrifice logistical challenges and you see all of that and you so value that this morning and father I thank you for the balm of Gilead that is sufficient to And I thank you, Father, for the amazing place that you have for us as your people to be your catalyst of grace and of healing. I thank you, Lord, for the intercession and the praying that will go up from this place in the days to come. Not only for the healing of this nation, but for the healing of nations. This morning, Father, we just bring individuals before you. And we thank you that you have an appointment with us this morning. In the name of Jesus. Remember that our sermons are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.